Welcome to Zero Trust 30. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and this is the show that helps you make sense of the cybersecurity sensation that is Zero Trust. This is a AppGate-sponsored podcast, and for more information on the AppGate Zero Trust solution, just head on over to AppGate.com. But that's not why we're here to talk today. Today, we're going to be talking about bringing Zero Trust access to the corporate LAN, and I am joined by Chris Shields and Greg Shields. So it's Shields and Shields uh, with a D. So it's going to be very confusing as we get in. Chris Shields is the Vice President of Product Marketing at AppGate. Uh, he's been aligning people, process, and technology to drive companies forward for more than 20 years with experience in operations, sales, telecom, new business development. His current focus includes evangelizing and marketing AppGate's Zero Trust Network Access Platform. We're going to be talking about ZTNA a lot today. Uh, and his his goal really is to help you know organizations accelerate their uh, zero trust journeys and, and and support their digital transformation initiatives. And we are also here with Mr. Greg Shields, who is the director of product management at AppGate. He's been working in networking and security for more than twenty years, also with experience in sales, sales engineering, product management. Uh, and he had a fourteen year stint at CenturyLink, uh, which is now Lumen. So he's very relevant for the conversation today, as we're going to be talking heavy up on the networking side. Uh, he joined AppGate last September to work on the AppGate SDP solution. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Chris, can we start with you? Just give out a shout out to the audience so that we know that you are here and human. I'm here and human. Chris Shields, not related to Greg Shields <laughs> with a D. <laughs> and how about you, Greg? Say hello to the audience for us. I'm here, George. Good afternoon. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Chris and George, good to be with you guys. Absolutely. And we did this uh, We did this before, uh, the three of us, so I'm looking forward to it. So we kicked this off, as you both know, uh, with a game that's called What's Bugging You? Very straightforward. I'm just going to ask you that basic question. Greg, let's start with you. What's bugging you? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I don't remember when it was, but gosh, it feels like it's been 20 years ago. There was a, a, a congressman who, when asked something about the internet, tried to describe it as a bunch of tubes. And, and, and I think he you know, took a lot of flack for that. And, and what's bugging me is I have to leave directly after this episode today to head to the airport because I'm flying out on a business trip. And the, the major highway where I live, uh, I've lived here for about 15 years now, it feels like it's never not been under construction. It, 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 just when you think it's done and they've got six lanes open each direction, next thing you know, there's Jersey barriers and traffic cones going up. So I am bugged about the fact that the state where I live, which charges monstrous amounts of gas taxes to supposedly fund keeping highways uh, running well and roads running well, uh, always seems to manage to just use that money to shut the roads down again and make it hard to get by. So, George, that's what's bugging me. Networks and uh, and and blockages like construction, probably, um, you know, some people think about uh, security being that way. And, and so those two things together, because I got to go to the airport, are kind of on my mind this morning. Well, we'll be respectful of your time and try to get you out of here <laughs> as soon as possible so you don't miss your flight. Thanks, George. We're good. Chris, how about you, sir? What's bugging you? Oh, gosh. Um, besides getting over a sinus infection, that's certainly bugging me. Um, <clears throat> interesting. I wonder if the the guy you were talking about, Greg, was happened to be from the UK because they talk a lot about tubes. Um, <laughs> so maybe it made more sense uh, over there. Um, no, but seriously, like just, the, you know, ZTNA being pigeonholed as a remote access only solution 
has been bugging me for a long time. Uh, and so I'm really excited about this topic. Well, that's a perfect segue because that's what we are talking about today. And that was actually the first bullet point that I had on my list of things when we're going to do a topic overview. So as we start talking about zero trust access, as it applies to the campus, right, on-premise, the LANs, the WANs, um, over the past couple of years, the pandemic has really shown a, a great light on zero trust and zero trust network access. But Chris, to your point, right, it has been pigeonholed in this remote access kind of bucket uh, for obvious reasons, because remote access has been top of mind. But now, as people are starting to return back to the office, you've seen this hybrid workforce type model, the idea of zero trust security has not gone away. But how it gets applied is significantly different, right, in terms of your remote access users and in the minds of the corporations adopting a zero trust mindset. So we're going to touch on that and then also take a look at you know, what does the future hold for on-campus networking at large, uh, the security component, the networking component, and of course, how Zero Trust is the glue to kind of help bring those things together. So let's dive right into it. And, and this, this podcast episode was actually spurred by a Gartner report that came out um, called Campus Network Security and NAC, a Ripe for Market Disruption. A direct quote from that report basically says, enterprises spend billions to secure campus networks via a combination of switching features and NAC, an, appro- an approach ripe for disruption with the shift to hybrid work. So what we just talked about, they go on to urge that product leaders should extend ZTNA products to campus environments to drive revenue and enterprise value, but they need to act fast. We, we loved getting this report and we said, yeah, this is, this is right on you know on par with what we believe and what we've been talking about for years so it's great to kind of see a lot of this uh the market shifting in this direction but i guess with that statement from from gartner um greg let's start with you what are the challenges that are kind of being raised here from this this report um what is what is the issue with on-premise campus land network connectivity and being able to apply zero trust to it well, I'll tell you, George, what's fascinating about what this report is, is discussing and bringing to light is this is something we've, we've known about as an issue for 12 years. Um, if we go back and we take a look at the, the original report um, by Kindervag, where he talked about why zero trust was something that we needed to move towards, um, and for those of you that haven't read the article, it's available all over the internet. I, I highly recommend going and finding it. It's a Forrester report. It's called No Chewy Centers. But it's kind of really the, in a lot of ways, sort of the birth of the idea of zero trust for, for security. Um, and, and one of the things that Kinderbog talks about is he talks about those pitfalls. What, what are the pitfalls with our current model of perimeter security and just automatically trusting everything inside the perimeter and, and then by default, not trusting anything inside the perimeter. And, and, and so, and, and he uses an example of a firewall. And I'm actually going to, George, just read a little bit from his first pitfall there. He goes, um, almost every security device, such as a firewall, comes at least one port labeled untrusted, another label trusted. The assumption that security professionals can easily identify which network interfaces they can trust is built into the very design of that security device. However, as the Philip Cummings case illustrates, and that was a case, uh, the Experian hack that took place, um, automatically assuming that you can trust anyone or any device inside your organization's perimeter is a mistake. 
and everybody on a LAN is inside your perimeter. And it doesn't matter whether somebody's inside the perimeter, outside the perimeter. And if we think about our devices today that we have, right? Um, you've got a, a smartphone in your pocket. You probably have a watch that connects to Wi-Fi. You have a, a tablet, maybe. You've got a laptop. People are entering and leaving that previously secured perimeter at an ever-accelerating basis. And because of the fact that there are so many devices coming and going, and they come and go with such frequency, it's really reached the point that organizations shouldn't look at a LAN any different than they look at a WAN. All of your same security concerns 100% apply. And, and like I mentioned, Kinderbag saw this 12 years ago, and it was actually the first thing he pointed to to when he started talking about the requirements for approaching what ended up becoming this zero trust model for, for network security. So no, no one should be surprised by this. And, and what happened with, uh, with COVID, where we all kind of started recognizing the importance of this from a remote access perspective, the great thing is companies have figured out how zero trust works. They figured out how to implement it from a VPN replacement perspective. But now it's time to take a hard look and say, really, what's different, whether my employees are inside the office on the LAN or if they're working remotely from a coffee shop or a hotel or, or their own homes? At the end of the day, the, the risk is really not all that much different, George. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, Greg, Greg said it well. <clears throat> I think, um, you know, it's funny that you talk about the No Chewy Center's paper. It's always been one of my favorites, um, you know, having been a networking guy like early on in my career. Um, and, you know, I remember the first customer that I talked to was like, you know, I'm really worried that now that I've got employees going back into the office after the pandemic, you know, they're going to be plugging into the LAN and all that great zero trust, least privileged access, you know, granular access is going away because they're plugging into a LAN port. And now they're going to be able to see everything on the network. Um, and, you know, it was like going, it was taking a step backwards in their zero trust journey. So, so there, that was kind of like the first clue that I had, um, you know, that this was going to be a problem when we all started coming back to the office or, or back to the campuses. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, and, and, and it's funny that it's, I think it's just a circumstance of where we are, at, you know, post March, 2020, you know, uh, a pandemic where we are just now looking at, okay, now I've got to have people back in the office, back on campus. I've got to figure out how to deliver zero trust, least privileged access on my LAN and, and across my corporate LAN. And how do I do that? And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I talked to another, uh, this is actually a prospect that, and Greg, I'm sure you've talked to a few as well, that um, they were concerned that they had you know, and maybe in haste picked a provider to help them with the remote access urgency that, you know, that all kind of happened uh, in 2020. And now that people are coming back to the office, they are, they kind of picked the wrong solution because there's a lot of vendors out there that really just built their system, their mm -hmm. zero trust access system to handle remote access. And then it's not handling the on-premise on-campus users very well. So, so what then is the issue with NAC installments? I mean, we all know that they're a big pain and they take forever. Um, you know, and they're why, expensive. Why, yeah, and they're expensive. So why is that not a viable solution for your, your, your land you know, traffic? 
because they're a pain and then they're expensive <laughs> I just they're clumsy. There you go. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. <laughs> you, you yeah, no, that's, that's, that's funny. George pointing out all the points perfectly. Yeah. Well. Um, you know, a, a couple other ones, right? One, you know, I, it's funny. I hosted a panel discussion on returning to work for one of the CSA chapters. Um, I think it was up in the Ohio River Valley. I can't, can't remember now. It was middle of last year. And it was really about returning to work because, you know, like at that time last year, people had started coming back to the office. You know, there's some companies that absolutely had to have people on campus somewhere at some point, and they didn't have the luxury of 100% work from home. So, you know, they've been struggling with this. But for those that most people went home, a lot of that stuff just was turned off or not patched, not updated. People came, you know, coming back, plugging in and stuff wasn't working. But beyond that, it's a completely different user experience. And I, you know, I do believe, uh, and I think in the, in the Gartner paper that you mentioned, George, that there's this hybrid work where I may be in the office two days this week, four days next week, zero days next week. And so it's a back and forth, back and forth and having to, having to have two different user experiences with two levels of, you know, least privileged access or, or zero trust access is a challenge for security and network folks, I think, which, you know, we'll, I think we'll talk dig into that a little more later because uh, I think the network folks are going to play an important role here and, and really help build the relationships and uh, between security and network uh, and start breaking down those silos, which I think is something that's going to need to happen for, for, for this to, to work. Uh, but also you've got two different sets of security policies because you've got your NAC and you maybe some switching security policies. And so you might even have three if you also have like some kind of zero trust access remote remote access solution. So you're managing three different sets of rules and ACLs and and that becomes, uh, you know, complex and ripe for, you know, human error or, you know, having different levels of responsibility and then having to span across, you know, kind of swivel chair uh, to try to get this visibility. At, oh, oh is, is, is Chris in the office today? Oh, no, he's not. So he ha- he's applying over here in this policy and I got to go look at the visibility over here. Oh, he's in the office today. I need to go look at this other one. It's interesting that, you know, you led there with user experience as well. And we see that come up quite a bit. Um, and it's important, right? You think about the nomenclature of zero trust that doesn't scream user friendliness at all until you dig into it and you realize that actually this does help empower your workforce to do good work all the time, be connected to the systems they need it to without that traditional security roadblock that most people work around. So Greg, let's have you jump in here because I'd love to talk about, you know, we talked about the challenges. What's the vision state here? You know, how, how, how can we look at and approach networking and security differently through the lens of zero trust um, for, for anybody, anywhere, right, regardless of where they're working? Well, and, and Chris made a really good point about one of the other reasons that I think folks like Gartner are starting to maybe raise the flag that NAC is a good security solution has kind of run its course. Um the number of businesses that found out that they could have remote employees once the pandemic hit just skyrocketed. I wish I had some numbers that talked about how many businesses had to have people go remote that weren't remote before and how that population increased. But just knowing what we know being in this industry, it's a massive explosion of that population of folks who are working remotely. And the the great thing is about a zero trust network access solution that if you find the right one, it can handle all of the tasks 
that we need to handle to secure remote users, but it also can handle all of those tasks that a NAC could previously handle as well. So doesn't it just make more sense from not just the user's perspective, George, that you touched on, is if I'm a user, the last thing I want to do is have some stupid corporate control getting in the way of getting my job done. And if I've got different types of environments in which I have to work depending on where I am, that's bad user experience. It's going to slow down productivity. Same goes on the back end for an administrator. Wouldn't it be great if I could just have some unified um, policy and, and, and a unified interface where as an administrator, I can control what George can get to and what Chris can get to regardless of where they are? Doesn't that just make so much more sense from an ease of use, both from both ends of that perspective, the, the, the client and the and or not the client, like the user, and as well as that administrator. So, you know, George, to kind of answer your question of what does that vision look like is, is I think it's time that companies that have implemented and subsequently recognized the security value of a zero trust approach for their remote users and their third party remote users um, can now take that, uh, that model and apply it to all of their users, no matter where they're sitting, and simplify the experience for, for both ends. And, and you know, Chris, earlier you touched on the fact that you had had some discussions. I think you mentioned one was a customer and, and one was a prospect. Um, I've, I've not been at AppGate for a terribly long time, but I've worked for another Zero Trust company prior to coming to AppGate. And I was amazed once the pandemic hit how many discussions I had with companies that had said, well, you know, we had looked at maybe migrating our MPLS network to SD-WAN, um, but then we sent everybody home, and all of a sudden we kind of realized that that the only function our MPLS network was really serving was to take traffic that was terminating on a VPN until we moved to a zero-trust model, and then trunk that traffic to be able to send it up sometime to AWS Direct Connect to get to our applications that are in... Amazon Web Services, you know, the, the desk phones have kind of gone the way of Teams. Um, bespoke video conferencing solutions have gone the way of Teams or Zoom or what what have you. And all of a sudden, this need for a dedicated kind of a wide area network that's really kind of like putting down railroad tracks didn't really apply anymore because the users were kind of all over the place and then the applications were all over the place and the applications weren't all inside physical locations that were owned or leased by that company anymore. They were up in public cloud or private cloud or at some shared tenancy data center. So why am I trying to, you know, trombone traffic or hairpin traffic all through some sort of centralized point, adding latency, adding complexity, goodness, adding mountains of cost when I can just leverage some sort of a zero trust model. And regardless of where my users are sitting, have them access the resources they need all under that same security model and policy. And I, I, I keep, you know, one of the things that we do in product management, George, is when you have sort of <clears throat> preconceived notions or even just notions about the direction that industry is moving or where requirements are moving, you, you, you kind of be not in your head and try to find where the soft spot is on that. What am I not thinking of? What are the use cases where, you know what, MPLS network is still critical. We've got to have that. But wh wh where where do those exist? And I just keep trying to, to, to come up with the answer to that question. And I'm, I'm not having a lot of luck. So we, we'd love to hear from you if you have an idea. 
of, of where those railroad track type of networks are, are still critical. Because I think we can, we, we can do away with the expense of those and improve the user experience by improving latency, improve the security by adopting zero trust across the entire enterprise, no matter where somebody's sitting, um, you know, and improve the, the life of the people that are responsible for those networks and administering them. So I don't know, George, did that, that answer your question? I felt like I may, might have rambled a bit. No, no, no. It was great. And I was going to beg the question back to Chris. Do you, do you share that vision? Is there anything you would add to what Greg just spoke to? I, I don't know. It was pretty thorough. Uh, I definitely, you know, I know that we have customers that are actively, some that have completely eliminated their WAN and MPLS connectivity and and SD-WAN, um, but certainly some that have extracted at least the user um population from that backend, you know, kind of WAN connectivity and saved significant amount of costs because there might be some, you know, inner application resource connectivity that still needs to happen. Uh, so I think it, that can be kind of like a, a journey as well. You don't have to just rip it all out, uh, but you can certainly start to, um, you know, remove costs, uh, you know, MPLS, dedicated MPLS circuits, stuff like that. It gets really expensive. Um, so I think there's cost savings angle there. Um, you know, but if I go back to, you know, p- pick on NAC a, a little bit, um, you know, it, I think the one thing that it does well is like network discovery, but I don't know if that's enough to justify the the cost and the complexity of, of getting that stuff rolled out. And another thing that's interesting that, uh, you know, Gartner pointed out in the paper was that some of these hardware refresh delays are up to 450 days. Oh, and yeah. I, you know, I just tried to do some quick math. I'm like, a year and a half, I can't get a, a you know, switch or a, a, you know, a piece of hardware for a year and a half. That's probably not a good thing uh, for the organization. So I think, you know, ha- having some kind of hardware refresh for switches, uh, switching a NAC might be an interesting time for an organization to, at least take a look at um, this because I think, you know, well, I don't want to jump ahead, but I'm, you know, just trying to think about the network folks out there and trying to do, I'm not saying that you couldn't do some kind of zero trust, least privileged access security with, you know, some complicated, you know, switching and some combination of NAC. But I think at the end of the day, if you're a network person, just the thought of having to not have to worry about all that security stuff and just build like a rock solid, you know, redundant, highly available core switching um, would be attractive, I think, to folks. Greg, what, what do you think? Yeah, Chris, I, 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 I do agree. And, and the, the supply chain issues with microchips and getting equipment, I mean, that that's nothing new. And I think we all thought when it started that that was going to be a short-lived problem and things would get sorted out and we'd get past the pandemic quickly and factory workers could get back to work. But it's still going on. You read about it in the paper all the time. There doesn't seem to be any indication that it's going to be getting any better. Um, You know, here where I live in North Carolina, we still see cars being sold for over sticker. And if you want to order a car, you're waiting three months to get it because of a microchip shortage. And, you know, I'm I'm a bit of a car guy. So I was reading an article the other day that um, BMW has decided for um, 
some line of cars that all used to get heads-up displays, that those were now no longer going to be included. They were going to be optional. What was the reason? Couldn't get the microchips they needed to do it. So you know, we, we see those supply chain issues have, have continued for certainly longer than I expected them to, Chris. And I, I don't know if you feel the same way about that. But, but so what does that do? So what's, what's the right answer when I can't get hardware that I need to, to, to get to protect my network? Well, then what do you do when you can't do hardware? You do software. And, and that's where this new generation of companies like AppGate that have a software-only solution that leverage virtual, virtualization, that leverage, leverage hypervisors, um, you know, we, we can step in and immediately get to work to address those security needs of those organizations without waiting 12 weeks for some box to get manufactured and shipped on the other side of the world. So, um, yeah, the, the, those those struggles you mentioned with with Knacker are, are and having to rely on the hardware to be available to build that infrastructure out. There's a better, faster, stronger way. Do it with software. And do it today. Or fifty-two weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 12, Twelve weeks. Everybody be like jumping up and down, cheering. Woohoo! Twelve weeks. So no, here, here's something I heard, and I want to pressure test it. You think about. A lot of the consolidation that gets you know articulated in the market in terms of networking and security bundled together, and it always feels as like what we're talking about here is you can actually decouple it and simplify. Networking folks, you focus on on the network. You can still deliver that internet as a backbone, Greg, to kind of what you were talking about, right? That cafe style networking. You can still focus on you know the switching and the the Wi-Fi for your your corporate on campus. Um, environment. And then the security team, obviously working in conjunction with the networking team, overlays security policies with like a ZTNA solution. Is that is that a fair way to kind of encapsulate it? Or is I completely off the mark? And that's an okay answer too. No, I, I think you're spot on, George. That That's the way. And I was never a huge campus networking, like, you know, doing massive core switching, um, you know, but I did smaller kind of environments. If you could take, if you could have taken all that security burden off me and all I had to do is build a a rock solid core network, um, that would appeal to me. Greg, what do you think? Yeah, hundred percent. And, and what's interesting is, you know, the, the, the blueprint is there on how to do it because you just need to look at any big telco. They build core networks and then and then you tack onto the outsides of those and the ends of those and you you bring your security and and I think again if the the network guys did focus on making sure that everybody that needed on network connection got one that was reliable um, mm-hmm. and was working twenty four seven and had the capacity that was measured out and 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 determined to be required for whatever kind of job is being done, wherever folks are doing those, that's still a real responsibility that people need to be, um, you know, smart, smart guys and gals working on to make it happen. Um, but as Chris said, if they could just focus on that and then you've got the security guys who are again, leveraging software now, and they're installing what they need to do without messing and fiddling with the network. And they can get their job done at the same time by making sure that, even if that network access is 100% reliable, it's only being used appropriately by the right people in the right context, access, accessing the right resources and applications. Um, yeah, I, I think there's 
tremendous wisdom in, in that approach. And, and the simpler you can make things, the more reliable they are. And, and, you know, you're, when you're mixing security and, and networking and trying to solve both of those problems at the same time with some sort of device or architecture or what have you, that's complexity and complexity is not where you find security. Um, so you simplify and you make more secure and you can let two different groups who are both equally um, important to the organization really focus on doing what they know how to do best and ultimately then providing, again, George, as you touched on earlier, that really critical, outstanding user experience where mm -hmm. they can do the work that they need to do, access the applications they need to access um, with as little friction as possible. And that's important. I, I think it will really go a long way to help break down the barrier that do still exist in some large enterprises, even you know mid-sized enterprises between networking and security teams and reduce that friction between those teams, right? Because th there's slightly different goals between the teams. And I think this really will help break down those barriers, reduce friction and make things simpler for both the network folks and the, um, and the security folks. So maybe this and would I, be. And I'm going to jump in one more time too, George, because this <laughs> made something that I thought was important. Is one of the problems I think today with security and network guys is if you think about it as a Venn diagram, there's often a fair amount of overlap between the two, and when you get that overlap, it's certainly easy to think that somebody else is taking care of something, or even worse, when something doesn't work, you can point fingers at the other side as well. Well, if you could do kind of what what Chris was suggesting and take that Venn diagram and, and move those circles farther apart from each other. So that all, if there's any overlap left at all, it's a microscopically small amount. It's going to result in both those teams working together better because there's less chance of, of finger pointing or somebody saying that your stuff doesn't work with my stuff. It might, you know, keep them, keep them separate. And it's going to, it's going to lead to a better experience for everybody. So, sorry, just what Chris was saying made me think of that. Now yeah, it was George, George's <laughs> idea. And well, I, no, I, I, validated I, I, just, I just resurfaced what you all talked about. In, <laughs> um, one additional point I want to make too is, you know, we're obviously talking about the users that's top of mind, especially in the hybrid workforce, but this same ideology applies to connected devices as well, right? Where you've got mm -hmm. tons of, you know, dumb devices, smart devices, all working off of your corporate network. They all need those same zero trust policies. But here's where I'm scratching my head. If I'm a CIO, I've got my budget spreadsheet. It's been allocated against traditional mechanisms for security and networking. Uh, this sounds big, right? It's a big undertaking. It's a big transformation within my organization. Where do I start? Um, I, I'm glad that you brought up, sorry, Greg, didn't mean to jump in here, but I, I'm glad you brought up connected devices because I think, you know, the Gartner paper was pretty insightful that, and it was written by, you know, s switching and NAC folks as, as well as kind of zero trust folks. So they had a good breadth of, of experience that they were bringing to the paper. And they, you, you know, when you have a campus environment or on-premises things, um, you know, like card readers and cameras and potentially IP phones and IP printers, right? You can't leave that out of your zero trust journey, right? That is a component of it that you have to bring in. And and so I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, but, but now I'm forgetting what your question was. My question was, so that's valid point, right? Yes. Um, my question was where 
where does one start? Right. So you, if you think about the zero trust journey, think about an organization like VPNs. Yep. Easy justification for replacing, especially with the remote work that's happening. We've seen that already take course. Now it feels like another step in that journey. And how do you how do you get laser focused? Because you are not going to go in and rip and replace everything out of the gate, right? It's going to be staged and phased. Uh, I guess what are those parting recommendations to somebody who is who is enlightened by the brilliance that the two of you brought to the podcast today? And that logical question is. <laughs> Sounds good. What do I do now? Um, so that that's a good question. I l- let's just assume you've already taken care of all of your you know remote access folks, and now yep. you've got people that are returning to campus, or you haven't really you've had people on campus or on premises, and you haven't paid any attention to them. They're just plugging into a LAN, and they can see everything uh, that's on their particular v- VLAN. Um, so if I take if I kind of take that as my starting point, uh, I think because it uses the same, you know, if you pick the right solution, it'll use the same unified policy engine. So you've already got all your access rules and, and stuff built, and then you can just start converting your campus to kind of, you know, what I call dumb switching or dumb connectivity where it's it and it's literally like a cafe style network where it is like plugging in to a Starbucks, whether it's wired, you plug into an actual physical port or whether you go connect to the land, the, the, the wireless land, uh, at the office. Um, it's just like a Starbucks, right? You can't get anything until you authenticate through all the great policies that you've built from your remote users. And then your, your users automatically get the exact same experience. They've already got the, the tools and the know-how of how to connect remotely. And it's going to be exactly the same when they get into the office. So I think, um, I you know that's a good question. I hadn't thought about like how you could kind of step into that. I certainly think it's not a rip and replace. Um, no. it's a, you know, maybe work on a particular, you know, group of switches or areas within the campus first, get those users onboarded into the cafe style network. The good news is like the security side, you've, you've already done all the, the yeoman's work in terms of your, you know, zero trust access. Um, I don't know, Greg, I, I think I'm missing something there. Well, I mean, Chris, what, what I would say in, in George is that ask any technology salesperson um, when they've got an opportunity that they have, um, they validated and that, you know, this is a good potential. And I, I've, I've, talk to the customer, they've got a need, the product that, that my company sells will fix that problem for them. Um, you know, we've done all those sales 101 kind of things up front, and now we've got a proposal in front of the customer. The customer says, hey, this looks great, yeah. And then you forecast it as a salesperson to close at the end of the month, and then you have a salesperson, and then you have a discussion with the customer and say, hey, listen, you know, I t- we talked about doing this, you said you had the budget. Um, wonder when we want to go ahead and get this started. You know, when do you want to give this order back to me? So we, oh, well, you know, we, we didn't realize that we had to, we had this emergency project we had to undertake where we had to migrate blah, blah, blah out to blah, 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 blah. So there's always something going on inside any large sides business where something's being changed, something's being migrated, something's being moved. So how do you start that journey? I think Chris touched on it is particularly if you're talking about a company that has branch offices it's a lock that in that branch office, in addition to the secured land that maybe we're using NAC to make sure that the, the access on it is being controlled, there's probably a guest Wi-Fi network. Well, so let's take the 
20 employees that work out of that branch office. We're not taking all 2,000 of my employees, just the first 20, and say, all right, kiddos, what we're going to do now is the way that you use your client right now to access uh, resources uh, using the zero trust policy and this model that we use, we're going to start using that both whether you're in the office or not. We're going to start that on Monday, and we build those policies for those users to access the resources they need. We get them going on the corporate Wi-Fi, the, the, just the, the, the open guest Wi-Fi that's already there. Let's see how that goes in that first small office, and let's begin the process there. Let's understand what challenges exist that may come from that. Let's see how big a lift it is for that first small group. Let's start to recognize what kind of savings we can have by ditching that NAC equipment once we've got them all up and going. And okay, it worked great in Milwaukee. Super. Let's go to Cleveland next and take care of that office. And so again, and, and, and again, that's the nice thing about software is you're not talking about, well, you know, to do this zero trust environment, you're going to need to buy $250,000 in new hardware that's going to be 52 weeks, as Chris was saying earlier. You implement software, and you, you and, and in many cases, you're using the software that you've already procured. You're just taking advantage of some new capabilities within it that, at the end of the day, probably don't even cost you anything, and you're adding more security. So, I think that's how I would counsel somebody if they're looking at doing it. Pick your small office, use the guest Wi-Fi you've already got in place, see how it goes, understand what the hiccups are, understand what the benefits are, and then say, okay, great, now I can start rolling this out across the rest of the company in some sort of measured fashion that matches what your people have the ability to do based on their other projects. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like I, I say this on every podcast because it always comes up. It's start small, think big, scale fast. Let's move on. Have a little bit of fun here and and, and transition off of uh, the, the heavy topic. And thank you both. Really insightful stuff. I, I've learned quite a bit. Um, we're going to do a rapid fire question and then we're going to let Greg speed to uh, some traffic before we can get to the uh, to the airport. So what we're going to do is ask three questions and you guys just answer it as fast as you possibly can. Um, we'll, we'll ask the question, Chris, you go first, then Greg, and we'll do that three times. Uh, what bucket list item do you most want to check off in the next six months? <laughs> wow. Um, get back to Italy. There you go. Really, that's fascinating. My, my, mine was get, get back to England. I, I have a brother who lives in England I've not seen since before the pandemic. So wacky that we both thought of travel, but that's absolutely it. Cool. Very nice. Well, if, if you are going to go to England, I recommend going over the winter, um, not because of the weather, but because the World Cup is going to be happening. And that is... Uh, that is that. That is my roots. Oh. I will be going back in the winter. Um, what was your best class in school? Uh, well, gosh, uh, in kindergarten. Let's see. No, um, <laughs> I'll stick to college. Uh, I had this cool marketing class where we actually had to run a like start and run a business and make decisions, and it was like a competition between groups of whose business did the best. I can't remember the name of the class, but it was the most fun class. Very cool. Mine was AP physics in high school. I had just a fabulous teacher who worked so hard to take these things that you thought about theoretically and put them in practice. I can remember taking the whole class, going out on the football field and shooting bows and arrows. Um, he was a huge Captain Kangaroo fan. He had this big Captain Kangaroo uh, portrait up on the wall. We had to salute the captain when we came into class. And I remember he, he would always sneak this in on us and we'd fall for it every time. We'd be working on formulas and be, okay, and energy, right? And what is time? And someone would throw out a number. And he'd go, no, time is money every time. And we'd all fall for it. But I mean, he really, he took something that could certainly be dry, certainly be boring, certainly be uh, confusing. And by finding all these creative ways long before the internet, 
to see things practically really made it a, a wonderful class. And I have just fond, fond memories of learning. And I can say in a lot of my, I, you know, people talk about, I'm a lifelong student, I'm a lifelong learner. I have to like force myself sometimes to learn new things. Maybe I'm showing my age, but I, I can just remember in that class learning and then just enjoying, enjoying learning. And it was, it holds a very special place in my heart. Wow. That's a great answer. So last question, I already know the answer for Greg because I can see him and where he's working. Do you prefer working from home or the office? Oh gosh, that's so black or white. I, I enjoy working from home, but I do miss, you know, seeing colleagues in person in the office. So I, I'm, I can't. Sorry, Chris, can the I correct answer both? was, it depends on if you have a ZTNA solution that is trying <laughs> to your corporate land network. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. No, right, George, right. I'll, I'll tell you my answer to that question. Definitely like being in an office, and I like it so much that I, I'm very fortunate. I've been a remote employee since 2005, um, and that was long before anyone knew about it. None of us had heard the word COVID. Um, but m- my wife and I moved from the Washington metropolitan area, where I was working at the time. Um, to a small city in North Carolina and a um, bunch of different reasons that, that we decided to make the move. But both of us were very fortunate that we had bosses that said, yeah, you guys can be remote employees. That's fine. And so one of the things that I, I said to my boss was, you know, you're, you're taking a bit of a chance letting me do this. You don't have anyone else on your team that's a remote employee. So I'll tell you what, to, to kind of have some skin in the game as well, I will rent an office when I get down there um, and it's great because I live in such a small town that the rent of my office monthly is cheaper than my gas and tolls were to commute when I lived in Northern Virginia. Oh, wow. But, um, but I like being in an office. I like, I like chatting with people and I'm a social guy and, and getting locked down for COVID was, was a big adjustment for me. I, I certainly got lonely. And if, if uh, we and some neighbors had not formed one of those COVID clans where everyone had kind of agreed to, to, take it seriously and we couldn't be social with them, I, I probably would have lost my mind. But I, I do enjoy being in office. I enjoy the interaction. And, and yeah, and it's nice also being in an office. At the end of the day, I shut my laptop and go home. And I really try to make my home life my home time and my work life my work time and try to, because I'm physically separating them as best I can, it's, it's, it's easy to then emotionally and separate them as well. So Yeah, That's definitely. Awesome. Very good point. Very good point. Well, hey, listen, both of you, thank you so very much. Uh, really appreciate your time. Uh, and again, to the audience, thanks for listening to today's episode. You can find show notes and other episodes at appgate.com forward slash podcast. And if you're not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you, wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is a production of AppGate. The opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the host and the guests and may not represent the views of the organizations. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and you've been listening to Zero Trust 30. That's a wrap. Great job. That was fun. <laughs>